sermon text for today is from Psalm 46. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamus, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Without God, the appearance of stability is just that, an appearance. But with God, even when we're, our lives appear to be completely falling apart, spinning out of control, what we truly experience is perfect stability. We all know what instability is, don't we? We all have experienced to different degrees instability in life. The loss of a job, a health diagnosis, broken relationship, financial distress. I was talking to a couple friends of ours a few years ago after the wife had experienced the tragic and unexpected passing of her father, I asked them what it was like going through that experience, and the husband told me that after this tragedy, suddenly every area, every aspect of their lives seemed to be unstable. You may have heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which took place in the height of the Cold War, at that time, in 1962, the Soviet Union positioned several, several missiles in Cuba pointing towards us in Florida. It was a tense time. These missiles were nuclear missiles. The crisis, height of it, lasted about two weeks. But during... The Cuban Missile Crisis, the stability of the entire world was challenged. One stray bullet could have begun a war. We don't live in very different days 
today, do we? We don't live in a very different world, do we? We know instability in our worlds, and we know that very often the world looks stable. Our lives look stable. But we know instability. And Psalm 46 depicts this reality so well. But in an ever-changing world, Psalm 46 reminds us that God never changes. Starting last week, we set off to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to do this for three weeks, and after we do that, we're going to go into a summer series through the book of Judges. I am convinced that much of the spiritual shallowness of the modern evangelical church that the, the more modern evangelical church faces today stems from so-called Christians who don't know the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and who are not able to see Jesus in His Word and apply His gospel to their lives. We saw in the Gospel of Mark, we saw this several weeks ago, that spiritual blindness is the inability to see Jesus. Spiritual blindness is when we can't see Jesus. We saw it depicted in, a, in the experience of a blind man, which parallels our experience. We go through life looking for Jesus. We go through life trying to see Jesus. And Jesus is revealed to us in the totality of his word. As Jesus appeared to his disciples following his resurrection, he said to them, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So last week we looked at the law of Moses, the book of Numbers. Today we will look at Psalms, Psalm 46. Next week we'll look at the prophets. We're going to look at Hosea chapter 7. So as we continue here, let's ask Jesus to open our minds so that like His disciples, we can see Him in all of Scriptures. A few things about Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is a congregational psalm. Notice the title right before it. The title right before verse 1 says, To the choir master. And then it gives us a style of song. right? An alamus, a song. This is a psalm that is supposed to be sung. This is a psalm that is supposed to be sung in the congregation, unlike psalms like Psalm 23 or Psalm 51, which are psalms about the individual, the Lord is my shepherd, have mercy on me, O Lord. This psalm is about the collective. This psalm is about us. Notice some of the language in it. In verse 1, God is our refuge. And strength. In verse 2, therefore, we will 
not fear. In verse 7 and in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. Sometimes we think that so much of the Christian life is about our relationship with God. This is all about my relationship with God. But, but Psalm 46 reminds us that it's not just about my relationship with God, but it's about our relationship collectively with God. I think there are two immediate applications here. First, it's so important when God's people sing about God together. This is what Psalm 46 does. It leads the people of God to sing unto God together. The Psalms model congregational singing for us. Secondly, it's so good for us to remember that God is the defender of His people as a whole. We must be a part of God's people for God to be with us. You cannot belong to God and reject the church. You must be found in the church in order for you to be able to say, the Lord of hosts is with us. This was also true of Israel. This is true of the church. God is our defender. Unlike almost every psalm up to this point, Psalm 46 is not a psalm of David. As a matter of fact, this is only the fourth psalm in the Psalter thus far that is not directly associated with David. The psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were Levites that led the music in temple worship. Greater evidence even here that this is a congregational psalm. The psalm is important, has been important in church history. Psalm 46 inspired Martin Luther to write, A mighty fortress is our God, which we sang earlier today. A hymn that has been a great gift to me and has been a great gift to the church for nearly 500 years. Sometimes we're given context for certain psalms. This psalm does not give us a specific historical context. Now that's good and helpful. Why? Because regardless of our circumstances, Psalm 46 applies to us. Psalm 46 is relevant to us. We're going to divide the psalm in three parts. And we're going to allow the word Selah, which probably indicates an instrumental or a meditation break, we're going to allow that word to break the psalm apart naturally for us. So we're going to see the word Selah at the end of, of verse 3, at the end of verse 7, and at the end of verse 11. So these are going to be our three sections for the psalm today. So first, let's consider God is our refuge and strength. Look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. God is a refuge for His people. The opening statements is a thesis statement. The writer of this psalm is saying, here's where I'm going. God is a refuge for His people. We know shelters, don't we? We know where we need to run during a hurricane. Now, shelters for hurricane are important, but their nearness are not 
as important as their safety. We know well in advance when a hurricane is coming. But I wonder if you've ever lived at a place that you needed to have a shelter for a tornado. Different, smaller, more compact in its general power, more powerful. While a hurricane warns us with two to three days to prepare often, right? A tornado could give us two to three minutes to find shelter. The nearness of a shelter for a tornado is vital. The psalm says that God is not only a shelter, God is a shelter who is present. A shelter that is nearby. A shelter that is available. A shelter that is accessible. Verse 2, we hear the word, therefore. Therefore here is calling us to action. Since God is our refuge and strength, therefore we must respond. If God is our refuge, if God is near, therefore we will not fear. Continuing verse 2, the psalmist says, Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is saying, If God is our refuge, even if all of these things were to take place, we will not fear. The psalmist is painting two pictures here. One of things that are stable becoming unstable. The earth, stable. But it's giving way. The mountains, stable. But they're being moved. And one thing that are, and and then also things that are unstable drawing near waters often a picture of condemnation judgment in the bible waters roaring and foam foaming the mountains tremble perhaps you were there a couple of months ago when jackson was being, was being baptized we went to melbourne beach and the waters roared and foamed all right Jackson and I might have been baptized, might have baptized ourselves a couple of times before the real baptism. But, by God's grace, Jackson was baptized. That's the picture. A sea that roars in foam. And this is so appropriate because baptism is this. A picture of victory over the unstable elements of life. Baptism is a picture of triumph over tribulation. In Romans 6, Paul compares baptism to victory over death. In 1 Peter 3, Peter compares baptism to Noah's victory over the waters of wrath in the flood. Baptism is a picture of our victory over the turbulent waters of life, the waters of Psalm 46. So how do we find victory in baptism? It is not by merely taking the action of baptism, is it? We find victory in baptism by being near to Christ. Actually, baptism is a picture of our victory in life by virtue of being united with Christ, by being found in Him. We're told to be baptized into Christ Himself. If you believe in Christ, 
should demonstrate that by being baptized. If you believe that God is your refuge and strength, you should demonstrate your faith by being baptized with Christ as a demonstration of your union with Him. You need to obey Christ in baptism. Baptism is a picture of success over suffering. And the Christian life is a story of success over suffering. Acts 14, 22, this is after Paul and Barnabas are stoned in Lystra. They get up and they say, through many tribulations, through many instabilities, through much suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. So really, Psalm 46 is depicting the experience of those who enter the kingdom of God. This psalm is painting a very realistic picture of the human experience. Life is hard. It's true. In this world, you will have trouble. But, take heart. Why? Because God is for you. And God is in control. Do you, do you know that? When you look at your life, and you think of the turmoil, the chaos, and, and, and you, you look at yourself and you think, if people only knew, do you know that in the midst of all that, God is in control? Do you know that God is in control over all things? Even your sufferings, even your shortcomings? And this is good news. Because if God is in control, He can do something about our suffering. Prayer is irrelevant if God is not sovereign. Why pray? But if God is sovereign, then prayer is everything. The Christian response to pain and suffering is not, is not to say that God is absent when we suffer and present when we find joy. The Christian response to pain and suffering is that God is near. God enters into the human experience. What other God can say that? What other God can say that they know what it's like to suffer. Only the God who, through Jesus, condescended, concealed His glory, took on flesh. Only the God who thirsted, hungered, cried, suffered, and died can say that when we suffer, He is near. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Really, Psalm 46 depicts Jesus' experience on earth. Jesus left the halls of glory, the halls of heaven, and entered Psalm 46. 
walking in pain and suffering, being challenged. And yet, you trusted. You walked by faith all the way through. Let's consider now, verses 4 through 7, God is our peace and joy. Look at verse 4. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Did you hear the sweet transition in language here? No longer are we talking about ro roaring and foaming and raging waters. We're talking about a river, a river that flows peacefully, a river that makes those that are around it glad and not fearful. These are not waters that destroy or threat. These are waters that nourish and heal. The answer to the pain and suffering of the world is the healing power of God. Friends, verse 4 is an invitation for you who is suffering to find healing in the waters of God. The city of God in its immediate context refers to Jerusalem. But the Bible is bookended by a city with rivers of gladness by two rivers of gladness. We saw that in Genesis. We see that in Genesis 2, verse 10. In Eden, right, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. So this is a bountiful river. But we don't have access to that river, do we? No. We were banished from that city because of the sins of our fathers and because of our sins. But look at Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit. Do, do you realize here? The tree is on both sides. There's one tree that is on both sides. This is an enormous tree. And this tree bears 12 kinds of fruits. What, what is that about? You know, there are great trees, right? So, for example, some of you may have mango trees in your, in your backyard. Mango trees don't give mangoes all year long, do they? Unfortunately, they don't, right? There's a season for mangoes, but then there's a season for drought, or, or there's a season for no fruit. But well, not this tree. This tree has 12 different kinds of fruits, a fruit for every month of the year. This tree always produces fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And listen to this. You know how we were hurt? and broken and bruised by the fall that kept us from that first river? Well, things are different in the second river. 
because the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's the river of God, friends. That's the river that we're looking forward to. The brokenness that we experience healed because of the tree that draws water from the river of God. There are many parallels between verse 4 and the end chapter of Revelation. Actually, there are many parallels between verse 4 here and Ezekiel 40 through 48. You might want to go home and read that. This is helpful because the picture here is a picture of restoration. Though waters can threat and destroy, when God uses them, when God uses water, He uses them to heal, to build, to restore. Remember the story of Job. In the opening chapters of the book of Job, Job loses everything, his possession, his riches, his children. But we often forget that Job's wife Loses everything too. The end of chapter 1, they both have lost the same thing. But what does she tell Job to do? She says, curse God and die. This woman is experiencing the waters that destroy, and she's not finding shelter in Christ. She's not finding hope and faith. But what is Job's answer? Under the same circumstances, under the same waters. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Job experienced the healing of the river of God. The chastisement of the Lord was a balm for Job. Oh, friends, we must be like Job and not like his wife. We must understand that the waters of the Lord flow through our lives to make us glad and not bitter. Even when we don't understand the providence of the Lord, our response to God must always be worship. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. The city of God is the city of God because God is there. You notice that? It is the holy habitation of the Most High. This is a city that is devoted to God. God lives there. The city of God is not the city of God because there we can fly or because there we'll see Uncle Bob again. We may or may not. The city of God, in the city of God, the greatest delight is God Himself. Why do we want to go to heaven? The answer must be because God is there. We need to understand this. We need to come to God not because of the benefits that we can get from Him, though there are many. We come to God because of God. We come to God because God offers Himself to us. As verse 5 continues, we see that this city shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now the psalmist goes to depict the, God's love for the city. The instability of verses 1 through 4 are gone. God is in the city. She, not it, you realize that? 
she, this is a term of endearment, she shall not be moved. Early in the morning is a time when cities are often vulnerable, people are asleep, armies often attack cities early in the morning, but God helps her even when morning dawns. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The stability of the city is now, is not dependent on the absence of external enemies. The city is stable even when the nations rage against it. The stability of the city is dependent on the presence of God. Remember this, friends, your enemies are not greater than your God. Your opponents do not even begin to compare in power to your God. The nations, the culture, our families could turn against us, but they all amount to nothing before our God. God has no rivals. None of his enemies match his power, not even one bit. God destroys them with a simple word. In verses 1 through 3, we saw natural disasters. In verse 6, we see human disasters. These are the two categories of evil. Moral evil done by human agents. And natural evil, simply a result of the falling world evil that is perpetrated by men and evil that is simple simply a result of brokenness these are the categories of brokenness and sinfulness which so affect us in our lives but friends the picture that we see here in the psalmist is that nothing no man no nature nothing affects the stability of the city of god in verse 7 we get the refrain of the psalm, the chorus, which is also repeated in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here, also in verse 7, we see for the first time the name Yahweh. You see it in your Bible, likely marked by the English word LORD in all caps. This is God's name. Not a generic name for God. This is his personal name. This name means that not only God is in this city, but this city is a city for those who are friends with God. This city is a city for those whom God calls friend. There is a Portuguese poem written by Brazilian poet Manuel Bandeira about the old, old city of Pastargada in modern-day Iran. The poem opens with these words translated to the English, I am leaving for Pastargada. Why? Because there I am a friend of the king. And this is the point of the city of God. We want to go there because there we're friends with God. We're friends with the king. And when the king is for us, who can ever be against us? 
If the king is for us, our instability will be made stable, our fears will subside, and if the king is for us, we'll have no reason to fear. The book of Psalms is a covenantal book, and it's important that we consider for a second what this means. This means that not everyone can read the book of Psalms and say, I benefit from this. Not everyone can read the book of Psalms and say, I am glad because I am a part of the city of God. This means that the benefits of this book are not given simply to those who know there is a God. You know, we can know that there is a God and not know God. The benefits of this book are given to those who know God. There's a difference. God is not a refuge to everybody, but He is a refuge to those who are His. God is a refuge to those who draw near to Him. Again, in verse 7, we read, God, The God of Jacob is our fortress. Jacob. God had a covenant with Jacob. The title Lord of hosts is a martial title. He is the Lord of the armies. He is the one who fights. And He fights for those who are found in covenant with Him. Is Yahweh your God? Are you able to call God your personal God? Do you know God? Do you know the God of the Bible is personal? He is God with us. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we hear the words of Jesus when He says, This is the new covenant in my blood. What is the covenant that we have with God today? It is the covenant that we receive when we believe the blood of Christ. When we believe that Christ gave Himself up for us. How can we know God personally? We must come to Christ, believing that He died for us, that His blood washes us clean of our sins. We must come to God knowing that Christ died for us and was risen for our justification. Well, you may be saying, Pastor Lucas, this sounds great, but it sounds distant. I want to experience the peace of heaven one day, but in a daily basis, all I experience is the chaos of a house overrun by children or the dread of an unpleasant job or the challenges of a broken and difficult marriage, or the loneliness of single life. Do I have to wait for heaven to experience the city of God? Well, there is a sense in which the fullness of the city of God will only experience when we come before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Well, friends, there is a sense in which the answer is no. The kingdom of God has ushered, has been ushered in our age. 
by Jesus Christ. You don't. You don't have to wait. Do you remember Jesus and his disciples in the middle of the storm in the boat? While everyone feared, Jesus slept. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus knew the city of God. Jesus knew the river of gladness. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't experience the same turmoil as his disciples. Why did Jesus sleep? Because of his faith. And friends, this is good news because faith can be granted to us today. Faith can be ours today. How do we experience the benefits of the coming city of God in our time today in the city of man? We believe. We trust. Jesus rebukes his disciple with these words. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So here's the key. The key to sleep in peace in the middle of a storm is to have faith. But faith in what? Faith in God. Faith that God is in control. That in the midst of our hardships, God knows what He's doing. Faith that God has a plan and a purpose for every event we face. Not some of them, not most of them, but Every event we face. Pastor Lucas, even the pain and suffering that I've experienced, yes. Even the injustice that, I, that I've experienced, yes. Everything. Nothing happens in the life of a believer without purpose. Because God is sovereign over all things. So, do you want peace? Do you want to experience the benefits of the coming city of God in this present age? Pray to Jesus as the disciples prayed. Lord, increase my faith. Do we really believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do we really believe that if we live, we live to the Lord? And if we die, we die to the Lord? So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Friends, if we believe these things, there's no storm that can overwhelm our faith. Because our greatest enemy, death, will have no victory over us. Finally, let's consider the last few verses. God's glory is our greatest desire. There are two verbs in this last section that are going to guide us here. The verb behold in verse 8 and the verb be still in verse 10. Look at verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with Fire. The language of war continues here. God fights for his people. Notice, however, that the language is not come join the Lord in his war. No, that's not what Psalm 46 is doing. The language is watch God destroy all his enemies who happen to be our enemies 
also. The people of Israel experienced this. We heard, we heard that read earlier when they faced when they were faced with the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. And here's what Moses says. And Moses said to the people, "Fear not, stand firm and see, see, behold, the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will." fight for you. So Israel, what must you do? You have to only be silent. That's how God wins wars. We're silent. And He fights. And He wins. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? This means that God fights your enemies, my enemies, on our behalf. I'm just called to see. Behold, This is one of the clearest Old Testament statements on salvation by faith alone. What Israel was called to do, what we are called to do, was to watch the Lord work. How do we save ourselves from our enemies? Do we work towards our salvation? Do we fight our own wars? No, we simply believe. We watch the Lord. We trust the Lord's deliverance. We rest in His power. We stand silently in the hope that we have a great deliverer. Let's step back from Psalm 46 just for a second and think, who is our greatest enemy? Is it not Satan? He is our greatest enemy. Is he not mightier than us? Yes, he is. And what does he want to do with us? Does he want to destroy our bodies, our wealth, our possessions? No. Satan doesn't care about that. As a matter of fact, often he gives us these benefits so that we can forget God. He wants to destroy our faith. That's what Satan wants to do. Satan is only successful when we don't trust God. There's no other success for Satan in this world. But who is Satan to God? Is he not his enemy? And what is God going to do with Satan? Will he not cast him into the lake of fire? So Satan, our greatest enemy, is doomed. The last chapter in Satan's life is already written and he loses. So our enemy is defeated. But we need to remember this, friends. God does not fight for everyone. Probably some of you in this room cannot say that God fights for you. Because as the prophet says it, you are separated from God because of your sin. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And although it is true that all of us are sinners in this room, perhaps you were trying to hide your sin, conceal your sin, Hold on to your sin. Perhaps you're trying to deal with your sin by yourself. If that's you, friend, today you're standing not on the side of God, but against God. He is not your refuge and strength, and your, but He is your adversary. Well, here's the good news. God has made a way. 
for you to be forgiven. He sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died on your behalf. And he calls you to trust in him. We're all born as enemies of God. But if you believe Jesus died and rose again in your stead, you can become a son or a daughter of God. Friend, this is the invitation that you're receiving today so that you can be on the right side of Psalm 46. One of the greatest lies that the devil wants you to believe is that you can stand at a place of indifference before God. If I just ignore God, live my life as though he's not there, then I won't have to deal with him, but you can't. There are only two ways to stand before God, one as his enemy or two as his son by faith and adoption. And if we come to him, he then calls us to live our lives for his glory. Look at verse 10. Be still. Be still and know that I'm God. Very often people stop quoting this verse here. Be still and know that I'm God. But what is the reason for us to be still? It is not that God will give us everything that we want or that God will will give us personally victory or will exalt us. No, we're called to be still and know that God is God because God will be exalted among the nations. God will be exalted in the earth. In other words, be still. And don't worry about yourself. Worry about the glory of God. That's what helps us get out of the pit of despondency. It is not about my life. It is about the life of God. It is not about my glory. I can go through this life, live my life, and be forgotten forever. But if I live for the glory of God, I'll never be forgotten. Be still and know that your enemies are my enemies. That's what God tells us today. So friend, today God is telling us to be still before our fears. Be still before our enemies because if we are Christ, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Would you pray with me? Father, help us have a passion, a desire for your glory and not ours. Help us, Lord, live knowing that it matters that the world knows that you're God. Help us trust that you are the God who fights for us. Lord, deliver us from our enemies. Help us, Lord, walk by faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.